Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Coming up on um, Radiotherapy today, three wonderful guests, um, a little bit of diversity too. Uh, we've got uh, Dr. Emma Beckett, uh, a molecular nutritionist at uh, Newcastle, coming in to talk to us. All things nutrition, um, spe- more specifically at a molecular level, and what does that mean? I think it means something to do with uh, looking at how diet and our genes interact and uh, what goes on at that microbiome level and so on. But we'll find out a whole lot more when we speak to her very shortly. We've also got um, Dr. Jason Agostino uh, coming on to talk to us. Um, he's a medical advisor in an organisation that goes by the acronym NACHO. That's uh, National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. Jason was in talking um, with uh, Daniel on the mission uh, back in February about some of the um, uh, uh, COVID-related vaccine, more specific uh, related issues uh, with Indigenous communities. And I'm going to pick up where that conversation left off. Um, Just a few short months ago, a lot's happened. Um, We'll talk about uh, some of the vaccine rollout issues um, facing some um, Indigenous communities um, around the place. And then uh, to round out the show, um, we're really pleased to be able to speak with um, Associate Professor Simone Tour for Pro Vice Chancellor Indigenous um, at Flinders University. And there's some fabulous news of a very generous um, gift to the university, about a million dollars as I understand it, um, that's going to go to a, a medical uh, scholarship for Indigenous researchers and will situate those um, recipients up at the um, Northern Territory Medical Program program that uh, Flinders runs. There's a couple of voices missing from today's show, Dr. Sharma and um, and Dr. Neo, my erstwhile collaborators, are unavailable. Dr. Neo, as you've heard him say uh, on uh, our June show, he's uh, occupied uh, with his internship. You know, he's doing like 26-hour days or something like that at the moment. And... Um, uh, he's unavailable. And Dr. Sharma at the 11th hour um, got called uh, to the front line um, to battle this so-called uh, plague that's running around the place. Um, so he can't join us, unfortunately. Are you just dealing with good old me um, for this Sunday panel beater with you? We're going to go to a couple of uh, station announcements. I'm going to get Dr. Beckett on the phone and we're going to talk um, all things uh, nutrition. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Today, we're going to speak with a Dr. Emma Beckett who's on the phone. Uh, Dr. Beckett is a molecular nutritionist up at uh, Newcastle University. And if you, like me, have just starting to come across this concept of molecular nutrition. We're going to find all about what that means. Dr. Beckett, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Really uh, looking forward to speaking with you, but let's, um, f- about a range of things, but let's uh, just start off by getting some definitions in place. What is a molecular nutritionist? 
So I use the term molecular nutritionist as opposed to an advice-giving nutritionist. So people think um, that food is all about how we look on the outside and, you know, being fit and, and keeping our weight under control and having glowy skin and all of those kinds of attributes. But really, food doesn't become nutrition until you it interacts with the body. So I call myself a molecular nutritionist because that's what I'm really interested in, those small-level interactions with the body and how food keeps us well or uh, makes us at higher risk of being unwell. So we're talking at a gene level, is that right? Uh, at a gene level, at a protein level, um, you know, at that really molecular level. So, yeah, I often focus on... Uh, the gene level, the DNA, whether it's the, the different versions of the genes we have or switching genes on and off, uh, but also mRNA and microRNA and all those other things that interact with our genes. Ooh, we, we might talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but just before we do, how do you do your job? You're in a lab? Um, I do a little bit of everything. So, yes, a lot of my work is at the, the lab bench, whether it's doing animal models or cell models or working with samples that humans have donated. But we also do a lot of uh, work with people as well, surveys and you know, focus groups, talking to people, finding out uh, what's going on in their lives. Right, right. Um, because, I mean... I think, well, one thing that all of us have in common is we all eat, right? Um, but uh, that doesn't mean to say that we're all experts about, about the stuff that we put in our gob, are we? Um, and part of what I gather you do is trying to translate the science into the information that uh, people can access, either through their nutrition, nutritionist or their GP or so on. Is that right? Yeah, so that's probably the best and the worst thing about doing nutrition science is that everyone eats, so... We will always be, you know, important in people's lives because we will always need to eat. What we want to eat changes, how we need to eat changes, but it also makes it really hard as well because everyone has an opinion on food. So, you know, everyone's got, you know, my mum lost weight on this diet or my partner got buff on this diet and those kinds of opinions and those kinds of anecdotes really aren't always evidence-based and it makes it a little bit difficult to kind of cut through the lived experience versus the evidence base in a way that you know people are going to want to listen to you yeah anecdote must be a you know a mortal um enemy to a lot of the science you're quite right i can even bring to mind conversations i've had in the last week or so about people saying what they've done to lose weight or how they're getting um or how they're perceiving a um a healthy diet people you know, uh, jump around. We all understand language like um, uh, protein, fats, carbohydrates at a macro level, but these things are complicated, aren't they? Absolutely, they're complicated. And we often make the mistake of talking about things like fats and carbs and proteins as the food. You know, we call pasta a carb, but ca pasta has protein in it. You know, it's right. not solely a, a carb source. So we need to remember that those are macronutrients, they're nutrient classes, and they're, they're not names for food groups. And we should never be uh, naming or focusing on foods based on just one of their macronutrient contents. So I, you know, I think part of what I'm hearing there is some reaction to when you when we hear people talk about the the meat only diet or the protein diet or the paleo diet and this kind of thing. Is that right? 
Oh my gosh, yes. And if, if you listen to only one thing that I say today, any diet that tells you to cut out one food or one food group or go hard on one food or one food group <laughs> is not a good diet and is not based in evidence. Bit of an alarm bell there, yeah. Um, it just occurs to me, I might go through a couple of those diets in a moment, but um, is there a distinction to be made between talking about nutrition and talking about diet? Yeah, so diet, most people when they hear the term diet are thinking about restrictive diets. They're thinking about a diet that has a name that goes with it, like the paleo or the keto or even vegetarian or vegan. But diet for us is really the patterns of eating, so what people are typically or commonly eating. Um, and nutrition is really when that those foods and those elements in that food start interacting with the body. So the interaction of the food with the, the organism is really what nutrition is, as opposed to diet being the patterns, the normal habits of the food that we eat. Right. And, and now if we start thinking about the food that we eat and thinking about the we, at a population level, we've probably got a heap in common. But um, reading a bit of your work, you're very keen to point out that there are some important differences at, a, at an individual level. Yeah, and I think that's really important um, and something we're going to see more of in the future. So a lot of our recommendations for food are based on, on the population level. They're based on the normal, the average person, the person in the middle of that kind of, you know, typical bell curve that we all know for, for our typical distributions. Um, but we do have people at the extremes and those people will behave differently. And in any study where we study anything diet-related or nutrition-related, you'll have responders and you'll have non-responders. And maybe the average response will show that this is a great intervention that works for people, but there will be some people who will actually get worse on that diet. Um, so figuring out why those people respond differently and how we can change the recommendations to make it fair and optimal for those people as well is something that I'm really interested in. What are the big variables? I'm going to guess that age is a big variable. Gender perhaps is a variable. Um, what else might be on that list and, and how do those variables play out? Yeah, so there's a lot of variables that we can't change, right? So obviously our age and our sex and those kinds of things, we can't change them. Uh, they're not malleable. We don't have a choice. Um, and, you know, other things, the way we live in terms of the environment that we live in, we don't have, you know, individual level control over the air pollution or the quality of the water that we access. Um, those kinds of things we can't change. Um, and our genetics, obviously, those are locked in, you know. We're given those at birth. Um, and that's why diet's really interesting in the way it interacts with all of these things because diet is definitely something we can change. So it's our, our number one modifiable determinant of disease, something that we actually can make a difference on. Um, what does your work tell you about um, disease and diet? Um, are we talking about uh, diet causing disease or diet responding to disease? Oh, yeah. Okay, that's a really good point. So uh, overall, what the research tells us about diet disease, genetics, and all those other determinants is it's complicated. Like, people want simple answers for this, but it really is very complicated because all these things interact with each other. And what you've hit on there is a really important point, that when one of these things changes, it changes the other. So if we change our diet, then that can change the way our genes are expressed. That can change our epigenetics, the way those genes get turned on and off. That, in turn, can change our diet again. So it's a real feedback loop, um, as well as the interaction that the uh, environment has with that. So once you think you've got one thing locked in in one direction, you need to then think about how it's changing things in that feedback loop. And that makes it really, really hard to study. 
Yeah, and so I'm gathering, therefore, there would never be advice that says that somebody's going to have the same diet, the same eating pattern their entire life, that, that there's going to be change for all of us at some point, depending on all of these variables playing into the coming into the picture. Yeah, so definitely the recommendations uh, change over over our lifetime. So we've got different recommendations for, you know, when people are pregnant, when they're breastfeeding, for when they're old versus when they're young. That changes as the needs of our bodies change, and that's true for everyone generally. Mm -hmm. But it is also important to remember that, yes, none of us eat the same thing over our entire lifespan. So people often, you know, they want the perfect study where we know people who eat this stay well and people who eat that get sick. But I, I eat different things each day. I eat different things each week. My diet looks very different this year to what it did at the same time last year. And that can make it very difficult to, to nut in on, on what's really going on with these interactions. Yeah, right. Let's um, turn our thoughts to the sorts of advice that is um, getting around. And uh, perhaps a, a starting point there is a consideration that we no longer really talk about the food pyramid. We talk about the food plate. Can you talk us through that distinction? Yeah, so we used to have a food pyramid. That's definitely what I learned uh, when I was in primary school. Um, and we've morphed from the, the pyramid into the plate-based format because the plate kind of more represents what people are actually eating. And you can say, you know, design each plate to, to mimic this layout and you know you'll be getting the right proportions of things. So that makes it a lot easier in a way. Um, and the other criticism of the pyramid was that it put the, the sometimes foods, the small <laughs> amounts of things, at the top of the hierarchy rather than at the bottom. Um, and so that, that was a little bit confusing, I think, in terms of, you know, the crown on top being the thing we wanted a little bit less of. Um, but these kinds of formats for, you know, the food pyramid, the, the plate plate-based uh, recommendations, they vary all over the world. Like there's versions that are shaped as huts, there's versions that are shaped as baskets, there's a spinning top. Um, so, you know, they're all different ways of trying to communicate similar information. Um, and really, um, and not, not enough of us are paying attention to those recommendations. What, um, what do you think explains that? Is it because we don't want to know we can't eat something we find tasty? We're trying to be a bit avoidant? Well, I mean, there's lots of reasons why people don't eat what uh, the recommendations are, why they don't eat that perfect plate format. Um, and, you know, there's societal determinants, there's, you know, money, there's time, there's uh, taste and uh, the, the rest of the sensory kind of properties. All of those are going to play into it. But also I think we're not very good at communicating what those recommendations mean. So people think that those are kind of rules and you must eat five serves of vegetables a day. Um, and not many of us do eat five serves of vegetables a day, um, but it doesn't mean that those people are inherently unhealthy in what they're eating. The recommendations are kind of just the easiest fit. How do we get all the nutrients that someone needs in a day into their bodies without overdoing the energy consumption with the foods that people normally eat. So if you don't normally eat one of the foods that's in that plate-based uh, recommendation, if you don't eat it for religious reasons or you don't like it or it's not accessible to you, you're allergic to it, it doesn't mean you have to eat it to be healthy. You can shift those uh, those recommendations to suit your lifestyle. They're just a jumping-off point. They're guidelines. They're not rules. You've um, done some work on um, labels, labeling, haven't you? And that turns uh, our attention to you know standard serve size can you just talk us to that please 
Yeah, labeling is really interesting because, you know, some people are very interested in in reading the labels and the information that's provided on packs so that they know that they're making healthy choices. But we don't necessarily always give people that information in an easy-to-understand way. So in our dietary guidelines, in our guide to healthy eating, that plate-based recommendation, we have standard serves. And our standard serves are how much of a particular food we should eat each day. On our packs, we have suggested serving sizes. So a suggested serving size is how much the manufacturer thinks you will eat in one serving. So if you get a bag of microwave rice, it'll say, you know, if it's a two-person pack, it'll say there's two standard serves in here. You get another bag of microwave rice, says four standard serves in here because it's a family pack. Those two standard serves don't necessarily match each other and they definitely don't match the standard serve for rice in the dietary guidelines and the guide to healthy eating. So we use these terms that we think as scientists are very different and specific, but really all the general public is hearing is serves and it can get very confusing. I th- I'm... I'm- I hope I'm not alone. I don't think I am alone. I thought that all of that information on the nutrition label was heavily regulated and that all that information was um, benchmarked. So, But you're telling us that the serving size is actually determined by the manufacturer, not by the same regulations that uh, the manufacturer is required to put the label together in the first place. Correct. Those labels are are very heavily regulated, um, and that's why you need to put on those the uh, the nutrition information per standard serve and per 100 grams or 100 right. mils, okay. so that it can be comparable. If you pick up something like a soy sauce in the supermarket, uh, one of the soy sauces can have five mils as its standard serve, the other can have 50 mils as its standard serve, depending on how the manufacturer says they think you're going to use it. So if you want to compare between products, always look at that 100 mils or 100 grams. Right, right. Good advice. Yes, I'm glad uh, that came up. I was under that uh, misconception there. Um, Let's talk about uh, a few of the different um, uh, diets that are in the in the, you know that we're hearing pretty regularly around the place in one form or another let's um go to the keto diet the uh the high fat low carb diet once upon a time something similar to the atkins diet how does a nutritionist look at a diet like that all right so the first thing i want people to know about the keto diet is most people who think they're doing a keto diet really aren't a keto diet is a really severe form of a high-fat, low-carb diet. A keto diet really should only be attempted under medical supervision when there is a medical need for it. So most people who say they're doing keto are just doing a high-fat, low-carb diet. Mm-hmm. Um, really, keto can be quite risky and there's limited benefits and it's not a very pleasant way to live. We <laughs> constantly forget that food is not just about health. It's about joy, it's about, you know, it's socialising and it's not a really pleasant way uh, to, to conduct your diet. And so if, if you don't have a real medical reason for doing it, I really would urge people against it. Uh, but if you are going to do it or do need to do it for a medical reason, do it with a dietitian. do it with your doctor, get some medical supervision to make sure that you are having a healthy, balanced diet at the same time. The, just for our, our listeners, the keto diet, um, as we've said, is uh, high fat, low carb. But the, the 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 hypothesis is that if you approach your eating habits in that way, that your body starts to burn fat rather than carbs. That's the ideal. Is that right? 
which, which is true. So if, if we run out of stores of our, of our carbohydrates, if we don't have enough carbohydrates in our diet, if we exhaust the ready stores, yes, we will burn fat. But if you're also consuming fat to make that happen, then you're not really triggering any weight loss. You're really just making it harder for your body to access that right. energy, which can have some unintended side effects, headaches, dehydration, irritability, all those kinds of things can really upset the bowel movements. Mm -hmm. um, so just because it has a biological mechanism that, that sounds like it, it should be a good thing, doesn't mean it's a, a practical or pleasant or useful diet for people to follow on a daily basis. Right, right. And how is nutrition science looking at uh, vegan and vegetarian diets? Vegan and vegetarian is really interesting at the moment because we've got this rise in the call for people to eat plant-based diets. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have um, lots of gold standard diets that are very based on plant products. Things like the Mediterranean diet, much higher in plants than it is in meats compared to our Western diet. But there's actually limited evidence that vegetarian or vegan has improved health outcomes on top of uh, someone who's just eating a moderate amount of meat. So if you've got a diet high in meat, eating too much meat, too much animal protein, that can increase risk for disease. Mm -hmm. But moderate is just as good as abstaining completely. So that's where this new kind of language has come from in encouraging people to eat plant-based because it's not saying cut out meat, it's just saying eat more of the plant products. Um, so it's a bit more of a moderate approach. But I do also caution against using the term um, plant-based because there's a lot of things that aren't really great for us that are plant-based. You know, <laughs> sugar comes from sugar cane, that's a plant. Yeah. Uh, potato chips, they're plant-based. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um, just, just because it comes from a plant, you know, vodka, gin, they're plant-based. Um, just because it comes from a plant doesn't mean it's a health food. So we need to be careful with that. And something that's not so much a diet as, a, as an eating pattern um, that's uh, getting a lot of attention, that's uh, intermittent fasting. How, how does our eating patterns, or your time-restricted eating is another label for it, how do the eating patterns and nutrition uh, play off each other? Okay, so there's two schools of thought about this. So on one hand, it works for some people who don't want to have to regulate what they eat, but they want to regulate how much they eat. And by simply cutting out some time periods that you do eat, you can reduce your overall intake. So some people it works for, you know, they, they enjoy the, the, the winning of fasting and, you know, the feeling of control that they get from fasting. They reduce their overall intake without too much effort. The problem with that is if you're not eating a healthy, balanced diet to start with, just restricting when you eat is really not making you healthier. It might restrict your energy intake, so you might lose some weight. But remember, diet is a lot more about a lot more than just maintaining a healthy weight. And so the problem becomes when when people aren't really addressing the underlying issue. There's also some criticism of intermittent fasting in terms of promoting uh, disordered eating patterns. Um, you know, some people call it eating disorder light. Um, and also it doesn't work for everyone. So, you know, if you're a, an electrician who gets up early and goes to the gym and lifts weights before they go and work on a work site all day, if you're not eating till midday, you're probably going to be a risk to yourself and others. So it works for some people. It doesn't work for other people. There's a lot of research on it, but my, my real take on it is we're tinkering around the edges. If we say, you know, people who stopped eating after 8 p.m., you know, 
had less kilojoules or had a better diet than, than the other people who kept eating as long as they wanted to into the night, cool, maybe that works. But if we're not all eating a healthy, balanced diet to start with, tinkering around the edges to change whether I eat between 8 and, and 12 or not is really um, not, not the key solution. Right, right. Um... The, so we've looked at diets, we've looked at eating patterns. Let's look at some um, specific foods that, you know, we, we hear the language of the superfood from time to time and, and that list seems to, to vary a little bit. You know, blueberries always seem to be on there for some reason, but other things come and they go. What are we talking about when we're talking about superfoods at the moment? Yeah, so blueberries are probably the most normal of the superfoods. Um, and superfoods is a term that just is so pervasive. Like, you cannot get rid of it. Um, but it's really not a scientific term. Um, it's, a, it's a marketing construct. So I put um, superfoods as a search term into PubMed, the, the, the yeah. public library of medical research. Um, and it came back with a, did you mean to search super funds? <laughs> So there's more medical research on super funds than there is super food. How about that? So, so not really a scientific term, um, not something we would use in the lab or in the literature unless we're studying people's opinions or knowledge on superfoods. Mm-hmm. But superfoods are really foods that have a sexy backstory in terms of an ancient civilization ate them or they grow in an exotic environment and they're not actually more nutritious than our regular boring fruit and veg. What are we so talking blueberry about? is probably one of the most normal. Sorry, Emma, uh, go ahead. No, you're right. So I was going to say, you know, there's, there's lots of weird ones like um, mango mango steam and um, shilajit powder and, you know, things that um, grow from the, extracted from the the moss of the dirt between the rocks in the Himalayas (laughs) and, you know, all kinds of weird things that people are going to eat because they come with this sexy backstory and they have a premium price tag. So premium price tag says to people, these things uh, are are better for you. They've got more to them. Um, And really, you're just paying more for the same amount of nutrition or maybe even less nutrition um, and not really getting any bang for your buck there. But we would say something like quinoa, you know, within the last 10 years, that's gone from being very marginal to, you know, probably fairly common in, in many homes now, right? Yeah, and in a way, that's that's fine. Like, they are perfectly nutritious foods. And if, if you want to market them as superfoods to get people to eat them, you know, that's great. People are going to eat perfectly nutritious foods. Mm-hmm. But the problem is you're discouraging people from eating the other normal foods at the same time. So it leads people to think that a, a healthy, balanced diet needs to be expensive, right. mm-hmm. needs to be fancy like quinoa, when you could just be eating brown rice or you could be eating, you know, all kinds of other legumes and pulses that would be just as healthy but cheaper. Um, so, you know, if we're going to be tricking people into thinking they're more expensive, we've really got to think about the the knock-on effect to the people who then think, well, I can't afford superfoods, so I might as well eat whatever <laughs> I want. Um let's uh let's take a look at uh the three big ones that you know I think the majority of the population is very fond of and really is hankering to hear from nutritionists who reinforce their use of chocolate coffee and red wine where are we at with those 
Uh, everyone loves to think those are superfoods, um, <laughs> and everyone loves to think that those are health foods, um, and it's something that you do hear a lot. Um, but the problem with these is all of those claims are based on studies where it's extracts of these compounds. It's extracts from grapes that are used to make wine. It's not wine. It's extracts from the cocoa powder. It's not chocolate. And it's very high doses of those that are being used in research to try and find new medicines, new supplements. It's not research about how much you should eat. So when you drill down into those studies, it ends up being like you need to eat a kilo of chocolate or 300 bottles of red wine to get the dose <laughs> that they're testing right. of that extract. And you don't need a nutritionist to tell you that 300 bottles of red wine is not going to be good for you. Yeah, damn it. <laughs> um, Emma, we're fast running out of time. I just want to um, maybe uh, look to the future. I'm wondering uh, what you're noticing about how tech and um, diet and nutrition is starting to, to come together. We're, we're obviously, um, a lot of people you see around the place are you know, using wearables, you know, like smartwatches and things like that. Um, what do you see for our future? So definitely personalised nutrition is part of the future. So the idea of personalised nutrition where, you know, you get your specific genes tested to find out what versions you have so that you can get your tailored recommendations is definitely something we're working towards. That could be a way that we, you know, reduce heart disease. It could be a way that we reduce diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, and it could be a way to motivate people. So, you know, we all really take for granted that we're different on the inside. We learn about genetics at school and we learn that you, you know, have different coloured hair and different eyes and we have different height um, and all those kinds of things. We know that comes from our genes. But then we really take for granted that on the inside, all of those things are different too. Um, so in the future, I think that's what we'll be doing. Um, that's really what we're working towards in the research. But I would caution people to watch out for people who are trying to sell them those solutions right now because the data isn't there yet. Um, definitely wearables and different kinds of... Um, Measurements and tracking devices are definitely probably uh, going to become more prevalent and start incorporating more diet. But again, there's a lot of people selling things right now that just aren't necessary. You know, things like breathe into this, it'll tell you how many carbs you ate today. Um, you know, not, not really the tech that people need. What we really need to start with is the simple before we go for the technological solution. Buyer beware is the message, right? <laughs> Absolutely. When it comes to anyone selling any kind of diet advice, buyer buy beware. Go and get your advice from an accredited practicing dietitian, not from someone trying to sell you something on the internet. Nice one. We've been speaking with Dr. Emma Beckett of Newcastle University. Emma is a molecular nutritionist. Emma, it's been wonderful speaking with you. Time's uh, flown. Um, thank you very much for joining us on Radiotherapy. No problems. Thank you for listening to me rant for so long. No, it was really fabulous. Thanks, Emma. Bye for now. We've been speaking with um, Dr. Emma Beckett, as I said, a molecular nutritionist from uh, Newcastle University. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We're um, 
turning our mind to Dr. Jason Agostino. Jason is a medical advisor with an organisation called Nacho, and we'll get him to talk to us a little bit about what Nacho does. Um, he's also a lecturer at ANU. Welcome, uh, Jason. Can you hear us? Yeah, I can. Can you hear me, Ken? Very clear. Welcome to uh, Radiotherapy and Triple R. Jason, I just mentioned the acronym NACHO, um, the organisation that you work with. Can you just give us a little bit of insight on who NACHO is and what it does and where you fit in? Yeah, so NACHO is the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation and we represent the 143... Uh, Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations across Australia. So they're a part of the primary healthcare system in Australia, but they have a few things that are are different, but perhaps the most important is that each one of those organisations is governed by a community board made up of predominantly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And, And so operationally, what does Nacho do? Uh, a lot of things. Um, it's, it's difficult when you're one of the, you know, representing Aboriginal health at the national level. But basically, it spans from advocating and informing policy, mm-hmm. uh, and also um, helping our services run programs uh, across the country, ranging from things such as sexual health to improved use of medicines. Right, and um, like many organisations, Indigenous or not, um, COVID occupies a lot of uh, attention, right? Yeah, that, that's made up, um, taken up most of my attention for the past 18 months and a lot of the, our organisations and our health services' attention over this time as well. What, is that, what has that 18 months looked like? I mean, I, I guess it's um, shifting sands the whole time. Um, what would you, how would you characterise how you first started dealing with it 18 months ago and uh, where we're at today? Yeah, the, it, yeah, right. It, it's changed a lot over time. Um, the first thing to note is that the Aboriginal health sector was ahead of the game in terms of, terms of thinking about the threats of COVID. And before National Cabinet had even formed, um, NACHO and uh, the Department of Health uh, formed uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander COVID-19 advisory group that I'm part of, mm-hmm. and that is co-chaired by um, my... Deputy CEO Dr. Dawn Casey, alongside Lucas Dotoka, who's um, uh, in the uh, um, Department of Health. So, you know, we were really fearful for what was going to happen to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities across Australia because of the high levels of chronic diseases such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease within our communities, and also the high levels of crowded housing. And we thought that the mix of those two things um, would would you know, spell disaster if COVID got into um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. So early on, there was a lot of work to do a, a number of things. And, um, you know, one of the first things that was really important was closing remote communities. And so that came at the request of those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and a number of communities across Australia closed. But, you know, it's important to remember that most Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people live in urban and you know, regional areas. So for those groups, um, you know, the key things that happened were just a absolute flood of communication messages coming out of our health services and flooding social media to talk about ways to keep you and your family and your community safe. And we also did a lot of work to make sure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people could come into 
their clinic and get tested um, and also get results quickly, um, no matter where they are. So for Melbourne, you know, that meant that um, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, which is the main um, Aboriginal community controlled health organisation in there, was, was running a testing clinic in their service. And for places in remote areas like where I work in Yarrabah in Fine North Queensland, we actually got these state-of-the-art point-of-care testing machines called Gene Expert. So um, a person can come into my clinic, have a test and get a result in 45 minutes. So um, that was the start of the pandemic and um, those responses were extremely successful. You know, we're now 18, or not not quite 18 months, but, you know, we've had zero deaths amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from COVID-19 and we've only had 158 infections. So the the rate of infection is actually six times lower than that of monks, non-Indigenous Australians. Jason, what would you put down um, as the reason for that success, and can we bottle it? <laughs> yeah, look, you know, I think you know, I think I spoke about a few things, but at the heart of it all is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership, right? And the governments, whether that's the federal or the state governments, listening to that leadership. So that is that is the secret sauce, and. Um, you know, we can bottle it, you know, yeah. <laughs> we want to bottle it and it's available there now. And, um, you know, COVID's had a lot of horrible things around it, but it has demonstrated the importance and the strength of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders to make decisions that, that affect their community. It, it really is uh, wonderful to hear that, that success story. And, and I was listening to you um, as you were talking and thinking, we've got to remind ourselves that, uh, you know, as tempting as it is just to say, um, Indigenous Australia or Aboriginal Australia, um, we're actually talking about a very, very diverse population and a, and a lot of diversity in the context for these populations, aren't we? So for the success to occur, you know, across across the nation, that's extraordinary. Yeah, you're 100% right. You know, uh, it's, you know, it's sometimes frustrating when people think of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as this one group when it, when it is so many diverse um, nations across the, across the country. And, you know... It required different responses in different places, and, and for that to occur, you need to leadership from that community, and that's what our Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations were designed to do, and that's exactly what they did. What's um, what's on the plate at the moment? I, I, I imagine it's revolving a lot around vaccinations. How's that playing out? Yeah, you're right. It's focus at the moment is on vaccination, in particular in getting Pfizer into our health services. Um, We've started on the back foot and outside of Victoria, where um, vaccination rates have been fantastic amongst the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community and are higher than the non-Indigenous Victorians, um, in every other jurisdiction, vaccination rates are are lower. Mm -hmm. And that is predominantly amongst people under 60 who for whom Pfizer is the preferred vaccine in in the groups above 60 um, vaccine coverage is pretty similar to non-indigenous Australians but under that there's quite a large gap and you know it's really important that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have Pfizer available to them and and are supported to um, receive the vaccine so um, up until recently you know just haven't been able to get Pfizer into a general practice, um, including our health services. But that changed around about a month ago when the TGA said that you could store it for 31 days. So since then, we've been bringing on more and more of our health services um, into delivering Pfizer. And 
at the moment we have 40 of our um, health organisations delivering Pfizer and by the end of the month we expect to have over 100 delivering it. So I think that'll be a big game changer and we'll you know, support people to, to have, get Pfizer and get those vaccination rates up. So in, in many respects it mirrors you know, the general experience that we're all having. It's, it's got to do with accessibility and distribution and supply um, and that's, that's something that's affecting everybody who's wanting to get the jab, right? Yeah, but I think in particular um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, these this fires, I think the Pfizer hubs that don't work for many people, but I think that it's particularly been a bad model for Aboriginal right. and Torres Strait Islander uh-huh. people, you know. Um, and, you know, so we could see where, where we could get a dose within your primary healthcare setting, so initially over 50s, but now over 60s, vaccination rates were really great and they were equal to what it is for for non-Indigenous Australians and there's no problems with supply of AstraZeneca and we're in our services. You know, the difficulty has been Pfizer and, um, you know, the the access to that has been um, really hard for a lot of people and and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community has been one of those groups. Jason, it's been fabulous talking to you and uh, as always tends to happen, time flies. Um, But uh, thank you very much for joining us today and and bringing us up to speed on on what's happening, um, the work of Nacho and um, what's happening more generally with COVID and Indigenous communities. Thank you for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me again. Thanks, Jason. We've been speaking with uh, Dr Jason Agostino, Medical Advisor at Nacho and Lecturer at ANU, talking about um, uh, some of the um, COVID-related matters and um, health services for Indigenous and uh, Torres Strait Islander communities. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We're uh, turning our attention now to uh, Associate Professor Simone Tour, Pro Vice Chancellor Indigenous at Flinders University, who during the week um, issued some wonderful news. Professor Tour, can you hear me? <laughs> Yes, I can. Thank you very much for having me this morning. Oh, it's really wonderful to uh, have you here, especially um, given uh, what what we're what we've heard during the week about this wonderful a million dollar research gift. I, I gather. Yes, it's it's fantastic news. Um, I'm really um, honoured to be able to talk about this um, important scholarship and the philanthropic monies from um, Mary Cowthorpe and Mr George Wong. It's a real honour to have met them this week and to um, see their visionary support for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander medical students. And so, am I right, it's a a million dollars, and how will that million dollars be used uh, for these scholarships? No, that's that's correct. It's a quite significant um, donation and contribution. And the million dollars will be used to really support um, future medical Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students. There'll roughly be four scholarships um, at the value of about $20,000 up to five years to support, you know, the aspirations and the goals for our communities to actually, you know, complete their qualifications in the medical profession and then to work out in the community um, with both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people but also the broader community. And they're medical scholarships in general, or are they um, going to be directing the research in a particular fashion? So, so they're medical, um, they're medical scholarships more general to really support 
the medical profession and the growing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander workforce. Mm-hmm. And clearly there's an absolute need to have our communities, um, you know, in the medical arena to support both our wellbeing, um, our healthy communities, but also to really provide that, you know, that cultural support when our communities enter into hospitals and medical health care as well. And what's uh, prior to this um, initiative, what has been the um, state of enrolments and research of Indigenous students in medical programs, um, either at Flinders, as you're most familiar with, or, or anything yeah. you may know about um, around the country? Absolutely. Like, I'm, obviously, I'm more familiar with, um, uh, with Flinders University, and uh, we've had the Northern Territory Medical Program for about 10 years at Flinders University, um, and, but the, the medical program has been accredited um, for over 40 years and at Flinders, but in the Northern Territory specifically for about 24 years. Mm-hmm. But from 2011, um, it was offered for the full four-year Doctor of Med- Medical program, and um, it's jointly funded by the Northern Territory Government and the Commonwealth Government. And roughly there's been about 131 graduates from this program more broadly, but specifically there's been eight Indigenous doctors graduate through the Northern Territory Medical Program, which is just fantastic to see um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples coming through the program to then become junior doctors and um, then to, you know, continue their profession in um, the medical workforce. And we're hoping there'll be around six graduates in 2021. So it's it's a really important... um, the medical program is really important. I mean, I think what's been significant about it as well is that around 63% of our um, students more broadly who take up, um, who go through the medical program, um, actually, about 63% actually take up work in the Northern Territory. Right. And that's an important feature, isn't it? You know, um, it's hard enough to get medical services in general into certain parts of Australia, but uh, no doubt in this case it's even more acute. No, absolutely, particularly in rural and remote communities, just access, you know, to really um, good healthcare is very important. Obviously, with closing the gap, um, having, you know, really supportive, culturally supportive services as well, and having Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander doctors able to care for Aboriginal clients is also, I think, a really important initiative. Um, you've mentioned um, the, the Northern Territory Medical Program. What, what does yeah. that actually capture? Um, so, uh, my understanding with the medical program is obviously that the students go through the process of undertaking, you know, their, their teaching um, within Northern Territory. It also allows them to work and learn with Aboriginal communities in the top end. So, a lot of the students actually do a lot of their learning um, in health services in Central Australia, including Darwin, Alice Springs, Tellant Creek, Nullumboy and Catherine as well as very remote communities. And I think that's a really important feature of the program um, because it actually brings, um, you know, students who are actually qualifying out into communities. And then that flow-on effect means that those junior doctors, those doctors, um, will come back to those communities. And as I said, having Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people come back to communities as well, I think is a really significant thing. Yeah, really. And we should point out, although this um, scholarship initiative is for Indigenous and Torres Strait um, Islander uh, students, the, the, yes. the Northern Territory Medical Program is um, anyone, right? That's correct. It's offered to um, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous students. And I think that's a really important feature that you have both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal you know, students actually going out into communities. 
you know, offer really important health care. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, and just in the last minute or so that we've got together, um, Professor, you, your, your job title is Pro uh-huh. Vice Chancellor Indigenous. What does that mean for a university to have a, such a position? Look, it's it's a really important recognition of, um, and it's a national. You know, nationally there are many provost chancellors indigenous, but what it does, it's an important recognition by the university that um, there needs to be uh, high leadership by indigenous peoples within the university context, and also high level governments. And it's also recognising the role that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play in terms of offering um, strategic advice around whole university engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's you know privileged to be able to undertake this role. I've been in the role um, about a year and a half now and actually work with the university, but also to work with our elder on campuses that we have. We have three elders on campus at Flinders and we have um, Uncle Lewis Burke O'Brien from Ghana uh, Nation in Adelaide, but we have in Northern Territory, we have um, Larrakia elder, Uncle Richie Fijo in Darwin and um, Arundel elder, Arnie Pat Miller in um, Alice Springs, but we also have a Jarwin elder, Sophia Catherine. So actually being able to bring Indigenous voices into the institution is a really important part of my role, um, but also that strategic engagement right across um, the university to say actually Aboriginal business is whole university business. That's really wonderful, dear. This is a, a good news story all around uh, this morning, uh, talking to you, Professor Tour. <laughs> um, thank you. Yeah, it's been wonderful speaking to you and bringing um, the news to our listeners. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. You too. We've, we've been speaking with Associate Professor Simone Tour, Pro Vice Chancellor Indigenous at Flinders University. Um, we're coming quick to time. Big thanks to Dr. Emma Beckett, uh, Molecular Nutritionist at Newcastle, Dr. Jason Agostino up at Nacho and ANU. Um, a big thanks to you for tuning in as always. Um, if you can't get enough of it, of course, you can find us um, on a podcast. And a big thanks to Max, who will be producing that and releasing it in the very next short little while. But for now, it's bye from me, Panel Beta. Um, Radiotherapy back at 10 o'clock next Sunday. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.